from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the free email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. On today's show, we have a writer that puts a modern day spin on a classic tale. With visceral description and literary skill, he takes the reader down a chaotic path, blending gothic horror with body horror. He's joining me today to talk about his recent work, The Modern Prometheus. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Jason Robert Ducharme. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for joining me on this 16th day of June 2023. I came across your book by recommendation of Claire Castleberry, and based on what I knew her exotic taste to be, I knew the story would be dark, intense, and psychological. And what I found was even better than I expected. And I'm amazed at how you took a classic story idea and put an innovative, unique spin on it and made it your own. So I'm very excited to have you on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the story is about a man named Peter that has died under tragic circumstances and is reanimated by a rogue medical student or at least post-grad medical student. Yeah. Peter is primarily himself with some added parts. The doctor, a man named Jacob, is surprised that his primary body is retaining its previous consciousness. Why did that surprise him? So I thought about this, and honestly, I feel like it came borrowed from the source material, really. I just want to add that, Frankenstein was actually the first novel I ever read, like nice. full on. Like, I mean, I read it when I was about 11. Uh-huh. So it was like my first actual novel. Like before that, it was like Cat in Underpants and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But it was the first book that made an emotional impact on me. And Mary Shelley as a whole has been deeply influential to me, like in, in my work throughout my life. And the concept of Peter retaining his memories and Jacob not being aware of it was sort of like a subversion of the original because, you know, it's called the modern Prometheus, which was the subtitle for Frankenstein. So I kind of expected people to go into my book thinking it would be similar to Frankenstein. You know, they would have this idea that 
the monster would wake up and he would be a lot like he would be in the original, you know, completely clean slate, almost like a child, you know. But in reality, you know, he's retained the memories of the primary body, the monster. And I kind of just wanted to channel that, the idea that the monster wakes up as a clean slate and then try and subvert that. You know, he's not actually a clean slate. He actually retains the memories of his previous self. Mm -hmm. So was his surprise based on, I guess, like since he was an aspiring medical doctor, the primary theory of consciousness is materialism, that it's something that originates from parallel processes in the brain. Was he expecting because he was technically dead for quite some time, even though he got the body relatively fresh, did he expect the consciousness to have, I guess, the consciousness has a shelf life? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So what I was thinking, I think I talked about it a little later on when, when Jacob's justifying himself to Peter about halfway through the novel. I think he talks about how he didn't really think about these aspects. He was kind of like ramrod focused on actually trying to make his creation come to life without really thinking about all these exterior factors like, what about this? What about this? What about this? It's just kind of like the goal of actually making it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah, like tunnel vision or something like that. Yeah. And as we get to in a minute, we find out where the tunnel vision comes from. So as far as the detail as to what Jacob uses to reanimate the corpses, I know electricity is involved, but did you have any new discoveries in mind that Jacob utilized? Honestly, no. Again, this is another thing in regards to the original. Like in the original... It's kind of like played up in popular culture that Frankenstein reanimates his monster through like lightning and electricity and stuff like that. But in reality, the actual source material, there are implications, but it's never really overstated or dwelled on because I don't think that Mary Shelley particularly thought that was important to the story, which I agree. I don't think it's very important. I think, you know, it's not about the actual creation of a man. It's about the aftermath in the creation of a man. And that's why I didn't really dwell too much on the scientific aspects of Peter's reanimation, so to speak. And not only that, but I kind of wanted to keep it entirely in his perspective. He doesn't really know the science behind how he was reanimated. He's kind of kept in the dark. And I think that would have made things a bit more scary, too, because you're seeing things from his perspective so much that you don't have the context as to why he's here and now. Yeah, you just kind of see the implements laid out and <laughs> you see yeah. he kind of sees what he was up to, but he doesn't know what he was doing with what's laid out everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get you. The main reason that Jacob is doing this is because there's an incident when he was young where he almost died and he doesn't remember anything when he was in a coma. And that darkness scared the hell out of him, making him think that there was possibly nothing beyond death. And one of the reasons that I personally hated having surgery all four times that I did was because of that total darkness caused by the anesthesia. Yeah. Where you don't remember falling asleep. You just all of a sudden you wake up and you feel like you've been run over by a Mack truck. Yeah. So I've often wondered if that's what death is like, if there isn't anything after death. 
Have you ever had surgery and had that experience? And what are your thoughts on death and what happens in the afterlife? I've never had surgery, so to speak. I got a lot of intestinal issues. Like I've had endoscopies and like colonoscopies and stuff because I got like colitis. Mm-hmm. So I've never actually had surgery. I don't know the degree of anesthesia there is, but I have been like put under. But I'm not sure if it's as strong as, say, like actually going under the knife. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like you said, you just kind of like fade out. But at the same time, in terms of my thoughts on death, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's because I just don't have time to think about it. (laughs) But honestly, like I'm agnostic. Like there could be something out there that could not be. But to me, it just seems like a fruitless endeavor to constantly be dwelling on it. You know, if you wind up dwelling on it so much to the point, you're not actually appreciating your time here. You know what I mean? But generally, when it comes to death, you know, I don't find it terribly scary. I honestly, you know, this will probably sound cliche, but I honestly think it's just like it's like going to sleep. But you don't really notice it. You know, when you're going to sleep, you don't really notice sleep coming on. You're just kind of like conscious and then you fade, and then afterwards, there's just nothing, and you're not aware of the nothing, and time just passes. Like, again, I know this isn't a very in-depth answer, but it's kind of like, it's just how I feel. It's just like, you yourself are not conscious in death, and therefore it's not very scary, I guess you could say. I don't know. That's generally how I feel about it. Yeah, I have a upcoming interview with an author that has a short story about what it feels like to actually die and how closely someone that actively dies in front of you kind of looks the same as somebody having an orgasm. So, so we're like, they're like, I wonder, like, is the act of dying, like, does your brain just start dying? dumping all these opiates and chemicals into your system is it like one of the best things that's ever happened to you <laughs> well i'm kind of like uh it kind of makes me think of this short story by Fyodor dostoevsky called the dream of the ridiculous man mm-hmm. and it's about a guy who's contemplating suicide and you know he's got the pistol on his desk and whatnot and he's really thinking about doing it and he falls asleep mm-hmm. and he has this dream where uh, he sees himself actually going through with it, except when he does go through with it, he doesn't lose consciousness. He actually sees himself like laying on the floor afterwards, and he sees people finding his body. He sees the entire funeral process. He sees himself in his casket being carried to the graveyard, and it just kind of gives him like this, this existential crisis, so uh. to speak because he's like completely aware of everything post death of what's happening to him. Uh Yeah. Scary stuff. And what's it called again? The dream of the ridiculous man. Uh, I think I've only read like notes from the underground. Notes is good. I like everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jacob had a very interesting backstory. He had a family, but not one that was loving or present unless it was in front of other people as an act. Because of this, he didn't really seem to have any attachments to people at all. He didn't seem like a psychopath, though he was singularly focused. Besides his drive to cheat death, what made Jacob tick? Loneliness. Loneliness? I think. Yeah. Actually, uh, one of my readers... Jess Ross, she's the bathtub bookworm 
on Instagram. Before I went ahead and published this book, I sent the book out to beta readers, I call them, people who read like one of the final drafts of the book just to give me their criticism and their thoughts and stuff. And one of her suggestions was that we didn't really know a whole lot about PETA. And like, she kind of asked the same question you're asking now, like what makes him tick besides cheating death? And I really thought about it. And I wound up adding to Jacob's character because of it. So I kind of appreciate her for adding this little tidbit in, but I kind of figured, you know, he grew up, without a lot of love, without a lot of imagination in his childhood, and even into his adulthood, he still didn't really have a whole lot of love. So in a way, you know, it's not just the desire to cheat death, but also to have a companion as well, a friend or something like that. But at the same time, because he grew up with no real friends, he doesn't really understand the nature, the organic nature of having relationships with other people, because He's a scientist. His relationship has always been his experiments. He doesn't understand that creating somebody, <laughs> you know, isn't exactly developing a natural and organic relationship. And mm. there could be unprecedented consequences to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's almost like somebody that's very socially awkward. Like you saw somebody that knows another person really well say something shitty to them. You know, but mm -hmm. that works because they know each other. So they're like, well, yeah. well, I'll walk up to somebody I don't know and say something shitty. And then they're like, wait, I don't understand. Why did this person get mad? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Socially unaware yeah. of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But um, actually, uh, something interesting that uh, you might find interesting about Jacob regarding his backstory is that you read about how, like, you know, when he had a ski accident and I think it was appendix that ruptured and he had a near-death experience from that. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. That was actually inspired by, you know, the band Mayhem? Ah, uh, I think I've heard of them, but I'm not familiar with their work. They were a Norwegian metal band from the late 80s, early 90s. Oh. And one of the lead singers, he just went by the stage name Death. <laughs> were they like Death? They were like a Norwegian black metal or something? Yeah, yeah. They were oh, Norwegian nice. black metal. Okay. But uh, Dad, one of the singers, he was obsessed with death. And the reason, naturally, <laughs> yeah, but the reason why. His name implies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the reason why was because when he was a little kid, he had this accident. I think it was like a skiing or like a, a skating accident or something. But he was only like six or seven years old. And uh, I think it was his appendix that ruptured. And he got rushed to the hospital and he was actually clinically dead for a little bit before he got resuscitated and the appendix was removed. And he always talked about it in interviews. And he said that pretty much ever since that day, he never felt completely alive. He always felt like he was like in this in-between place between life and death. And that's something that I kind of incorporated in Jacob's characters. Not only is he lonely, not only does he want to cheat death, but he also, in a way of cheating death, it brings him out of this feeling of limbo as well. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of parallels to, I guess, art imitating life and vice versa. In the book, there's repeated reference to Peter being an affront and an abomination to nature. 
Whenever we cheat Mother Nature, she exacts a toll, and that toll is usually directly proportional to the level of which we cheat Mother Nature. So if we take Tylenol to eliminate a headache, it's a little hard on our liver, but, you know, no big deal because we're not really cheating her too bad. But bringing somebody back from death is the ultimate way to cheat Mother <laughs> yeah. Nature. So yeah. it makes sense that things go bad for Peter. So kind of paralleling that out into real life are there any ways that we're currently attempting to cheat mother nature that you think are way over the top and should not be done i actually thought about this i mean we're doing it right now we've kind of been doing it with cloning since the 90s mm. and, you know now we're kind of like in a place where we're trying to like revive wooly mammoths or something like that. I think this was a recent thing last year where they were talking about bringing wooly mammoths back. Yeah. You know, but the thing, <laughs> yeah, but the thing that I feel like parallels the most is uh cloning technology. Cloning is just something that freaks me out. Like maybe it goes back to the whole like ye old fear of the doppelganger or something like that. But cloning to me just seems like, actually genuinely scary like yeah. i know that uh you know we've only cloned animals like lambs and stuff like that but the idea of actually taking that to a human with like the elevated consciousness of a human is something really really scary to me and haven't they you know obviously not gone full-blown human but haven't they grown I guess that's not, I was about to say, haven't they grown human tissue to replace ears and stuff like that? But I guess that's not exactly like cloning. They're just reconstructing like yeah. parts of the human body. Yeah. I, you know, to me, I feel like crossing the line between like using stem cells to like regrow body parts and things like that. I feel like it only really crosses the line once actual human consciousness becomes cloned. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, somebody that's got the identical hard drive, I guess as yeah. another being okay yeah, <laughs> yeah it's weird because you know like it seems like that's kind of i mean i guess it depends on the resources you're utilizing but it seems like in just mainstream news and stuff like that you're hearing all about ai and tech stuff but like i haven't heard about cloning in quite a while but i, yeah. I imagine if you get into the more niche type of resources is that what you're talking about where they yeah like I don't know, like, I feel like currently our technological advancements are not really going for organic kinds of science, but rather, you know, more like a Skynet kind of science. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So, you know, I don't think it's completely irrelevant, but I think it's a lot more interesting to me just because it's not as prevalent in our society currently as it was in, say, the 90s when we were really toying around with, like, genetics mm -hmm. and genetic splicing and things like that. It's one of the reasons why Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton was as relevant as it was, because it was basically the same idea. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out, like, when you were talking about it, I was like, my God, are they doing it and just keeping it out of the media? <laughs> <laughs> They're still doing it. They're just like, no, no, look over here at all this tech stuff. Yeah, AI, <laughs> evil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think the most recent stuff in regards to that was, like, the whole discussion of resurrecting, like, woolly mammoths. And I think this was, like, last summer they talked about doing that. Okay. Yeah. Well, Peter ends up in a very unfortunate situation for... All intents and purposes, he's dead, even though his consciousness is still alive, which makes me think about what it means to be alive. And this is kind of like 
what we've just been talking about as far as cloning, if they were able to develop AI that can mimic a particular person's consciousness. So I don't know what that would look like. Maybe something that would be held in a computer if there was no meat attached to it. <laughs> would, yeah. would that be your family member or friend or whoever this is if they had the identical consciousness, but it wasn't even in a quote unquote human form? You know, I thought about this question, too, and it actually made me think a lot about this video game I played a few years back. Do you play them at all or no, are familiar with them? No. Yeah. There's one called Soma, okay. and it's kind of like a first-person kind of like adventure, kind of like narrative-focused. It's set in the future where somebody can take a brain scan of your brain and literally plug it into a computer, like a dongle or something uh -huh. like that. And, like, this guy in, like, 2015 gets a brain scan. You know, it's an experimental technology because he suffered a head trauma or something like that. And, like, 100 years later, that brain scan gets plugged into a robot, and he wakes up in a robot body. It's a lot like that C-Lab 2021 <laughs> episode or, or whatever. And a horrible comment has destroyed the Earth, and, like, the last remaining few people of civilization are, like, in this underwater sea lab at the bottom of the ocean because it's the only safe place to be and literally everybody is dead but all of their consciousnesses have been saved through this brain scan thing and plugged into robots mm. and one of the aspects of the game is that at several points in the game you yourself have to make copies of this theoretical dongle brain scan and plug it into other robots so it becomes kind of like this ethical issue like are you the same person are you even a person despite the fact that you're a robot yeah <laughs> if you make a copy of yourself on this dongle and plug it into another robot does that mean there are two of you which one of you is the real you <laughs> so before this whole thing happened when you were a human your consciousness just consciousness, you've long since died. You've been sitting on a hard drive and that gets downloaded into this robot. You're saying that now that consciousness that's downloaded into the robot downloads the consciousness into another robot? Yeah, like say, oh, say that's like very uh, meta. <laughs> <laughs> like say the dongle gets plugged into a robot and your consciousness gets uploaded into the robot. And then like you're a robot now, but you also have this thumb drive with your consciousness on it so you decide to stick it in another robot as a robot uh -huh. and upload your consciousness into another robot yeah. you know what i mean yeah so it's like it kind of like raised all these interesting questions like which one is the real you yeah are you both like equally valid because it's the same consciousness mm -hmm. are you even human you know because like you're conscious i don't know it, it raised a lot of like really interesting questions for me that game but like it's also, like, going back to your question, it's like, in a way, like, the whole concept of AI is just kind of, like, scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, on one hand, like, would the AI be able to mimic the abstractions of human thought? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, or would it only operate on a rigid algorithm like that mimics the consciousness you know what i mean yeah. it's, it's like i don't think personally that ai can be fully as conscious as a human brain so to speak 
because I think there's still like lines of code. There are still rigid patterns that a computer has to operate in. And it can't really operate in that abstract form of thought. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, to me, like, I think the reason it could never replicate human consciousness is because computers, you know, don't get me wrong, computer software and stuff like that can get corrupted. But for the most part, when a computer is running right, it does not make a mistake, you know? Yeah. Human consciousness, we're flawed. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I don't care how much we've got it together. We're flawed as fuck. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we're going <laughs> to, our behavior isn't as consistent as a robot. I mean, that's probably one of the first things people would say if they talked over the phone to this consciousness that, yeah. that had been created. They'd be like, why are you talking like a robot? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Not only that, but our consciousness is constantly influenced by our bodies. You know, we got hormones, we've got the food that we eat and how it processes in our body, depending on what we eat, can affect our mood and can affect our thoughts. You know, there's all these different factors at play in a human body, in a human brain, in a human consciousness that I don't think can be completely replicated in an AI. I think the AI would do a real good job at mimicking your loved ones if you uploaded their consciousness to a computer, but I don't think it would be able to really recapture the abstract nature of human thought yeah. or emotion. Mm. Well, it's evident at some point throughout the novel that the cause of all this trouble is partly from Peter's own doing, but you can't be totally sure about that. So was that knowledge meant to further drive Peter into a more frenzied state of insanity and throw the reader off balance? And if not, why was that fact inserted? So uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on this question? Like what specifically? Okay. I was just, I was trying to avoid a spoiler, <laughs> so I think I can do it without, let's see. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so Peter finds out that he was, or he, he doesn't find out he's told, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, that he was at fault in the event. Oh, yes. That okay. caused, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I know what you're talking about now. Yes. Um... I do think that's one aspect of Peter's downfall in the novel. I needed it to be convincing because I'm typically a pantser, but in regards to this novel, there were so many working parts that I kind of had to plot out certain aspects of it in order to make it work. I knew that Peter was going to fall really far at the end of the book, and it was just a matter of doing it convincingly, because I feel like when I read a lot of books where the main character goes crazy, it's not really convincing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's usually very, it's just not convincing to me. And that was one of my biggest fears writing this book was not making the downfall of the main character convincing in the perspective of the reader. So I added a lot of different aspects that would significantly contribute to that downfall. And I felt that the part of the book that you're referring to right now was one of the biggest, most pivotal ways that would bring Peter down and carry him to where the book needed to end his position at the end of the book. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point on that, having a pivotal role in his downfall, the way it's kind of described by Jacob is that he's having this, psychotic break almost like it has to do with his consciousness not being securely tethered to his being or something like that but once he finds out that information and you add that to his 
almost like self-hatred that he's some sort of a freak of nature. It almost seems like grandiosity, like he's trying to deny his situation and turn it around into something magnificent. Am yeah, I, that's exactly what I was shooting for. Okay. All right. I was yeah. curious. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no. That makes perfect sense. It's almost like entering a a frame of denial. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. things are so bad. Like you kind of like as a coping mechanism, you kind of go straight to the other side of the spectrum into grandiosity. Mm-hmm. But it's also one of the things I wanted to explore with this book was exploring the concept of Frankenstein's monster in the 21st century. You know, Mary Shelley, she wrote Frankenstein. The original Frankenstein was published in 1818, and it covers a lot of themes that were prevalent in 1818, but aren't so prevalent anymore, like uh, galvanism and romanticism and the Enlightenment and things like that. I wanted to try and see what would happen if you took that monster and took it and brought him into the 21st century, where there are more modern interpretations of the science that was just experimented on in 1818. And not only that, but there are all these different philosophical concepts that were developed in the 200 years since then. And one of them being existentialism. One of the reasons why Peter feels this self-loathing and why he is unable to reconcile with the fact that he's not Peter anymore is because of existentialism, essentially. A lot of it came from Jean-Paul Sartre, who is mentioned in the novel. But it's kind of like the idea that when you die, you cease to exist. But when you're brought back to life, do you magically exist again? Or are you the same person? Or what are you? And to a degree, how much does our environment influence our identity? Like, you could go out tomorrow and, like, see friends or, like, go to work or whatever, and everyone's like, hey, Vince, hey, you know, what's going on, Vince? You know, people know you, and you know who you are. There's this security in being identified in the world by people who know you or people getting to know you. But what happens, it's almost like this imposter syndrome, almost like what happens when you know who you are, you know your name, you know your history, you know everything like that, but literally the entire world around you doesn't think you exist yeah or it doesn't recognize you for who you are there's like this like wall between you and the world around you that you feel completely trapped in almost you know yeah it's like you're being denied your own existence the same way they do with like prisoners of war yeah they will not address you by your name they'll assign you a number yeah, And you're not allowed to say your name. Nobody's allowed to call you your name. It's like they <laughs> they take everything from you, including your identity. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the steps of the dehumanization process, you know, which is very apropos for Peter's situation, because the more that his environment refuses to acknowledge him as a person and refuses to acknowledge that he exists or is even human, the more that he himself stops believing that he's human am i making any sense oh yeah definitely yeah but that had a big part in playing into this grandiosity his reasoning that well if i'm not human and nobody considers me human that i must be something completely different something that's never existed before and he kind of like as a coping mechanism he kind of like runs with that yeah you know what i mean 
yeah, I can't bring myself to accept that it's something horrific. It's got to be something elevated, something amazing. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Otherwise, my psyche just can't take it. My brain will just cave in on itself. <laughs> yeah. On top of all the other things he's dealing with, you know, regarding his wife, his kid, the circumstances of all that and everything. It's just a lot for him to process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ending is very dark, as you've alluded to earlier, and doesn't leave you with any sort of warm fuzzies. Yeah. Which is the kind of ending that I love, and I can't explain why exactly. So do you think the fact that you would write an ending like that, in a sense, makes you sort of a sadist? And if so, does that make me and your audience a form of masochist? I think... uh I think there's a desire for masochism, honestly, <laughs> but, but honestly, the reason why the ending turned out the way it did was because there was kind of negative reception to the ending of my last book before that. Okay. I had published this book before the modern Prometheus and a lot of people enjoyed it, but a lot of people felt like really burned by the ending because it was very ambiguous and it kind of like left no answers. It wasn't really a zinger. There wasn't this big climax or anything. A lot of people felt it was very anticlimactic. So for the modern Prometheus, there was this desire to deliver on what I didn't deliver in my previous book. I was just like, kind of sat down and I was like, okay, I got to write an ending and I got to make it deliver. Mm-hmm. How can I make this deliver? <laughs> so, you, so you were like, uh, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essentially. I just, I just want it. I know the ending's very, very dark and violent, but at the same time, that's what I knew people really, really wanted. And I wanted to give that to them because I honestly felt really, really bad, not really delivering on my previous work. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to give people what they wanted. Like they wanted something really dark. They wanted something that really delivered as horror fans. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I just wanted to write something that would satisfy and, you know, make people pleased that they made it to the end and waste their time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think there, there is a degree of sadism and masochism there, I think. <laughs> well, I didn't read your uh, previous book that you're referencing, but uh, as far as this book is concerned, well done, sir. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and the medical aspects of the story seemed very accurate. What kind of research did you do? Well, honestly... Math and science are my worst subjects. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am not good at math and science. Like, I took a human biology class in college and dropped out, like, after a couple of weeks just because it was just way too much and it was way too boring. And <laughs> so I can't really say for certain how much of it is accurate, but I will say in regards to the corrupted nature of Peter's awakening, so to speak, the reason why there's, like, this flaw was to kind of add like a ticking time bomb aspect to the story you know that Mm. kind of plot device where like i gotta do this by this certain time otherwise this is gonna happen you know it kind of helps the pacing of the story but it was also a desire to add body horror to the novel and to just kind of like also further deteriorate peter's sense of self like he no longer looks like himself he's losing his identity that's kind of like the whole theme of the book and i felt this aspect of this corruption in his return in his body would enunciate the themes of the novel but i will say when it comes to like scientific research 
a lot of that aspect of the body horror was influenced by radiation poisoning. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Like when I was younger, like a teenager, I read a lot about like nuclear bombs, the Chernobyl disaster, Kushtim and Three Mile Island. I don't know. It was just like the whole nuclear age was just utterly fascinating to me. And reading about radiation poisoning was just absolutely like the most horrific thing you could ever imagine. <laughs> and I kind of channeled a lot of that knowledge into Peter's medical condition halfway through the novel, you know, when he starts physically changing. It's kind of like the same idea because in radiation poisoning, all it really is is that the radiation corrupts the chromosomes in your cells and makes it so that they can't reproduce. Hmm. So you're literally melting alive. And that's kind of like <laughs> that's kind of like what's happening to Peter. Well, speaking of not only your writing, but the research of those sorts of dark topics, when you're in the process of researching or writing something really dark, have you ever had to step away because it was affecting you emotionally? And if so, what did you do as sort of an emotional palate cleanser? Honestly, uh, this is probably going to sound bad, but I just... <laughs> I don't give a fuck. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't give a fuck or anything. It's, it's that I guess I'm just... I mean, I was raised with unrestricted internet access since I was like 11 years old. I you feel know, like I you're also... <laughs> still trying to say you don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I, a little bit, but, you know, I mean, it's just like I grew up in an unsanitized era of the internet, you know, uh -huh. I just, I'm not really affected by things like that. I feel like when I'm most affected is when I'm writing about things that I guess I should say it depends on the topic because there are things that do get to me like emotionally. And I just don't like writing about it or reading about it. Like for example, sex trafficking. Like I don't like reading about that. That stuff makes me feel icky and things like that. You know what I mean? But when it comes to like gore and stuff, like it doesn't really affect me because I think it also goes back to the idea that I just think that death is just part of life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to actual like genuine human suffering and things like that, that stuff does affect me. Like, you know, human trafficking that affects me emotionally. I don't, it just makes me upset. And like, for example, there are all these videos of all these war crimes coming out in Ukraine right now, and that's upsetting. And I don't watch that stuff. But when it comes to like stuff like anatomical videos, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like educational videos, like opening up carcasses to like examine the organs and stuff like that, that stuff doesn't affect me. And like maybe more stuff like post car accident videos it's tragic, but it's not really cruelty, you know, mm -hmm. that you see in, like, say, for example, sex trafficking or war crimes or things like that. It's just a horrible accident. Yeah. You know, there's no there's real no intent behind it. There's no maliciousness behind it. Intentional maliciousness. You know, I think when it comes to reading or researching things, the things that really do bother me are intentional maliciousness that really bothers me. But when it comes to, like I said, like anatomical videos and things like that, it doesn't really affect me so much because it's just kind of like, oh, hey, it's a human body. Oh, that's what we look like on the inside. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, my next question is kind of a more succinct way to summarize what you've just been talking about. I wanted to know if there's anything you feel is off limits to write about for you, not necessarily for everyone else. So I hear sex trafficking, definitely. Is there anything else that you just like, "Ah, I'm not going to write about that? I feel like personally, like other people can write however they wish. But when it's a topic like that, I feel like. I'm not so much interested in actually writing about the actual sequence of events of that kind of stuff happening. I'd be more inclined to write about the psychological and emotional consequences of things like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not showing that kind of stuff, not writing about that kind of stuff directly, but maybe writing about characters who have been affected by things like that. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, if I had to label your book into a subgenre, I would refer to it as transgressive science fiction. Would that be an adequate description? And if not, how would you describe it? And what drew you to those particular story elements? Transgressive science fiction. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty appropriate word for it. Personally, like I still think it's a gothic novel. It's a contemporary gothic novel, but mm-hmm. it still deals with matters of life and death and kind of dwells on these these topics very deeply. And I like to think thoughtfully, at mm-hmm. least. But to me, it's just a gothic novel, like Mary Shelley's gothic novel, you know. I'm sure it's definitely a lot more descriptive and gory than the source material, but I don't know. I feel like at its heart, I think it's a gothic novel. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, because science fiction, I suppose, would be a little bit more detached, I guess, from the emotion. I think science fiction would be what I was asking you at the beginning when we first started. All of those technical details, I think if it was science fiction, those would all be fleshed out. So because because it's dealing more with the feeling, yeah, it is more of a gothic tale. Yeah, Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Because gothic fiction to me... It's all about emotions, you know, a lot of the the greatest gothic novels out there, you know, Anne Radcliffe, Mary Shelley, Shirley Jackson, even uh, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, they're all very emotionally ingrained rather than dealing with like technical aspects of things, you know. That's just why I wouldn't really call the novel science fiction, because it doesn't dwell on the science of it, yeah. more dwells on the emotions of it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great book all the way around, and I am glad I came across it and glad I was able to have you on the show. So one last question I wanted to ask you was, what advice would you give an aspiring writer that can't seem to stay focused long enough to complete a book because they either get sick of what they're writing or feel like it's no good? Huh. I would say, honestly... This is something that affects a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you got to realize is that writing a book, part of it is passion, yeah. But at the same time, it's a job. You got to treat it like a job. There are some days where you want to go into work and you want to have a good time. And there are other days where you don't want to go into work, but you just got to do it. I have a process of working and I'm kind of like summarizing three of your questions into one <laughs> okay. answer here. I got a process of my own. And that's to write 1,000 words a day. That sounds like a lot, but it's really not. It's only about four manuscript pages, 250 pages a day. I use a typewriter because I have ADD. 
And if I try to write a first draft on a computer, then I'm not going to write a first draft on the computer. <laughs> you know, a typewriter is a word processor. It, it serves only one purpose to write. Mm. There's no gadgets or nothing like that. And not only that, but when you're editing, you got the paper right there. You can just take a pen and edit it. There's also no doodaddies in regards to the process. Yeah. So I write a thousand words a day. It only takes a half hour of your time. That's all. If you can spare a half hour of your day to write, then do it. And after that, don't think about the book. Just put it out of your mind. Otherwise, you're going to get sick of it because it's a long process of writing a book, especially when you're only doing a thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. But after, say, about three months, that's about 90,000 words. That's an entire novel right there. Like writing a thousand words every single day. Three months later, you got an entire novel. Mm hmm. And you work consistently, you devote that half hour of your day to work, and something will come out of it. But you can't really overthink it, which is why I suggest not really thinking about the book unless you're actively working on it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because when you overthink your work, you wind up criticizing it way too much before it's even finished. And you don't even know where the book is going to go before it's even finished. Mm-hmm. So you wind up overthinking it because you're overthinking it. You're finding all these flaws in it. It's just demoralizing. Mm -hmm. So if I had to give any advice, half hour a day, 1,000 words a day, and once you're finished your work for the day, don't think about it. Just close that door, enjoy the rest of your day, and don't think about it again until you sit down to write again. All right. Mike, drop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jason, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, I wish I could have stuck around longer, but unfortunately, I <laughs> I got scheduled for 12 Duty hours today. calls, sir. I totally yeah. understand. Yeah, the life of a security guard, unfortunately. <laughs> well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you enjoy Mata Prometheus, definitely check out Ceremony of Ashes and Come Forth and Thaw. A lot of people seem to like those in particular. They're both novellas. You could read them in a day. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Vincent. Absolutely. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Jason, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'll see you around, all right? All right. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to sign up for the free email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be joined by a writer from across the Atlantic who has authored an amazing complex tale centered around the classic setting of a haunted house. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Yeah.